Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. The recent FDA approval of aducanumab was met with a high degree of controversy from the medical community. This monoclonal antibody offers the first novel pharmacological mechanism targeting Alzheimer's since 2003. Yet in the setting of dubious results from trials, aducanumab was found to have unsatisfactory evidence to warrant approval according to a 2020 FDA advisory committee vote. Despite that, the FDA approved the medication in June 2021, leading to several resignations of advisory committee members, a federal investigation of the interaction between the manufacturer and FDA staff, and healthcare professionals' uncertainty regarding this medication. Today, we invite Dr. Joseph Osborne to review the pharmacology of aducanumab, assess the literature leading to its approval, and to evaluate ethical and financial considerations that contribute to the complexity of its use. The controversy surrounding Biogen's recent approval of aducanumab or, or aduhelm here on throughout the presentation um, exists to this day and serves as one of the most polarizing FDA medication approvals in recent history. Now this controversy is rightfully justified. 10 of the 11 outside experts that had served on the FDA's advisory committee voted on November 2020 against approving aducanumab. However, seven months later, we see that the FDA approved aducanumab under a very broad label of for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Now, this had several responsing actions. First, three members of that same FDA advisory committee res resigning a federal investigation examining the operations between both Biogen and members of the FDA, and lastly, healthcare professional uncertainty in terms of what we do with this medication moving forward. Now, this uncertainty is paramount in the setting of health population setting. On this slide, what I have here is projected patients with Alzheimer's disease throughout the next several decades. And there's two points I'd like to speak to. First, there was a projected 5.8 million patients in 2002 afflicted with Alzheimer's disease. And this is expected to slowly increase over the next several decades, culminating in 13.7 million patients in 2050. Now, the quantity of our patients with Alzheimer's disease aside, there's additionally a significant burden that this places on many domains within society. First, and I'll speak to this in more depth in later slides, there's a functional ability loss, cognitive decline, and emotional toll that this disease takes on our patients. Sadly, as many caregivers find themselves to be members of the immediate family of the patient afflicted, there are those same physical economic and emotional considerations from their perspective as well. And then finally, from a larger societal perspective, there's a cost of care, health service utilization, and an overall economic consideration as well. Now, to speak to this, in 2010, the WHO reported international numbers on the expenses of dementia and found that there was $604 billion of expense related to dementia as a disease state. If we consider this as a, as a country in the world, this would be the world's 18th largest economy. 
Now, before we dive further into the presentation, I have learning objectives for the audience today. First, we'll describe the pharmacology of aducanumab. We'll then move through and summarize the clinical literature and approval process for aducanumab. And finally, we'll discuss stewardship considerations relating to aducanumab as well. With that, let's dive into the pharmacology. Now, I'd like to speak to major types of dementia or major neurocognitive disorder, as I will refer to them here on, uh, given the setting of that accommodating language for our patients. And these are arranged from most prevalent to least prevalent with our top four, Alzheimer's disease being naturally the primary focus of this presentation, cerebrovascular in the setting of that localized ischemia, Lewy body in the setting of alpha synuclein deposits, and finally frontor frontorotemporal on the setting of um, degradation to those particular realms uh, of the brain in the setting of genetic abnormalities. Now, again, we're going to be focusing on Alzheimer's disease moving forward throughout this presentation. And I'd also like to highlight the progression of symptoms that we'll see with our Alzheimer's patients. These are broken into early, middle, and late stages with some of that memory impairment, maybe forgetting items around the house, and more of those mild cognitive setbacks towards the beginning of the disease. As we move into that middle component of the disease, this is where we see those behavioral manifestations, certainly that discomfort as patients start to lose a little bit of their, their personal history and, and, and knowledge in that regard, and that continuing cognitive decline. And finally, as we approach the twilight years of Alzheimer's disease, that loss of acti activities of daily living, dyspraxia, and usually malnutrition in the setting of being unable to perform those daily tasks. I additionally would like to highlight a median survival from diagnosis. I have both men and women listed on this slide, and, and I'd like to really uh, highlight the range in years here being that three to nine time period. We see not only that this has a high burden on patients, is immensely prevalent throughout the population, but these patients are expected to live for some period of time after that diagnosis. All of these are important factors to take into consideration as we move further into the presentation and those financial components. I'd also like to speak to one particularly important genetic factor in the setting of Alzheimer's disease with the clinical trials I'll speak to, and that's the presence of apolipoprotein E epsilon 4, or ApoE4 as I'll refer to it here on throughout the presentation. Now it's unclear what mechanism of pathology that this has in the setting of Alzheimer's disease. However, what we do know is that we see an increasing prevalence of familial late onset Alzheimer's disease, with expression of at least one of these alleles. Furthermore, the incidence of Alzheimer's disease increases from 20 to 90% as these alleles increase. So some link there with the prevalence and incidence of Alzheimer's disease in these patients. I'd also like to move through and speak to kind of the history and the hypotheses surrounding Alzheimer's disease. First was decreased levels of acetylcholine, the formation of neurofibrillary tangles in the setting of tau protein, and what we'll focus on primarily today, accumulation of very sticky amyloid beta plaques in both the sol soluble and insoluble state. Now, these three hypotheses coupled with inflammation and oxidative stress are thought to lead to that end state of Alzheimer's disease. And as I mentioned, considering what aducanumab's target is, we're going to be focusing primarily on the amyloid beta uh, pathway of this pathophysiology moving forward. I'd also like to set the stage for what our FDA treatment uh, medications have looked like over time. In the mid-90s, we see entrance of the cholinesterase inhibitors, again, calling back to that acetylcholine-based uh, hypothesis. 
We then had the most recent up to aticanumab FDA approval in 2003, 17, 15, or excuse me, 18 years ago with mabantine, our N-methyl D-aspartate receptor antagonist entering the market. And then in 2014, combination products aiming to reduce some of that pill burden and be of assistance to our patients with that setting of cognitive decline. What I'm looking to highlight here is that the vast majority of these, all of these medications focus on improving quality of life and reducing symptoms associated with Alzheimer's disease. None of these reverse the course of the disease or otherwise offer any sort of prognostic difference uh, throughout the course. So aticanumab served as that novel mechanism of action 17 years prior to the introduction of a new medication. So how does aticanumab work? This is a monoclonal IgG1 amyloid beta-directed antibody, and it effectively labels amyloid beta plaques for destruction. This is a neuron, and over the course of its lifespan, the neuron will excrete amyloid precursor protein, or APP. Now, naturally, over time, this accumulates and accumulates, and our body has ways of breaking this down through enzymatic scissors, our beta and gamma secretases. These secretases SNP, our amyloid precursor proteins, and cause the formation of amyloid beta monomers. Now, again, these monomers accumulate and are quite sticky, and through several processes, will form both amyloid beta oligomers and amyloid beta fibrils. These fibrils can glom on and infiltrate the neuron, causing neuronal death dysfunction and presumably leading to Alzheimer's disease symptoms. Now, when we enter aticanumab into this mix, the medication selectively binds and highlights or targets these different amyloid beta plaques, again, both soluble and insoluble, recruits microglial cells to that site and destroys the amyloid beta plaques. What I do want to note is on this slide and regarding aticanumab, there has been no evidence showcasing to this point that aticanumab reduces or otherwise alters the course of Alzheimer's disease. And I'll speak more to the clinical efficacy in the coming slides. This is the dosing and administration that we have for the medication. It is an IV infusion and it's slowly titrated up as I'll speak to in the dosing scheme later on with a gold dose of 10 milligrams per kilogram for our patients. It's infused over a one hour period every four weeks with that minimum 21 days in between infusions. And notably and importantly, there are several MRI requirements for this medication. One prior to initiation and then one prior to the seventh and 12th dose. Now the reason for that is in the setting of safety, which I'll speak to now. Aticanumab being an IV medication has several adverse drug events that you've seen throughout other infusible medications. However, new to this medication is the incidence of amyloid related imaging abnormalities, both edema and hemosiderin. Now what the percentages that I have here are representative from the 10 milligram per kilogram cohort from my eMERGE and ENGAGE trials, which I'll speak to later. And I'll uh, highlight specifically what this uh, ARIA-E and ARIA-H look like in those coming slides as well. We also see headache, angioedema, hives, antibody formation, and a bevy of various neurologic considerations as well with these medications. Now, this is a key component of safety I'd like to highlight that's relatively unique to this drug. Again, these amyloid-related Im imaging abnormalities are exactly that. Their imaging findings, ARIA-E is located to brain edema with ARIA-H being micro hemorrhages that occur within the brain. We're still unclear uh, on how this mechanism uh, occurs. The micro hemorrhages uh, is thought to be due to that increase in cerebral and then our uh, vessel wall weakening with brain edema as well. 
And I'd also like to highlight here, we do see that APOE4 influence uh, with higher prevalence of these adverse drug effects in our APOE4 carriers, 43% versus a 20.3% incidence in our non-carriers. So with that, that leads me to my first question. Please feel free to respond at pollev.com slash mayorx. Now you can do this at your laptop or on your smartphone. Uh, if you choose to use your smartphone, please text mayorx to 22333. And the following options for the answer, or for the question rather are, which of the following best describes the pharmacology of aducanumab? A, attenuates the effects of acetylcholine on cholinergic neurons. B, labels amyloid beta plaques for destruction via microglia. C, increases tau protein accumulation, or D, inhibits beta and gamma secretases, preventing amyloid beta monomer formation. Perfect. And as these results continue to trickle in, I, I do agree with the audience. B is correct. Uh, Adicanumab labels amyloid beta plaques for destruction via microglial cells. Um, A is incorrect. It does not influence acetylcholine uh, in, in any manner. See, it actually decreases tau protein accumulation. I'm choosing not to speak to that component of this, just to focus on that amyloid beta component, but it would decrease tau protein accumulation. Um, and D, it, it again, does not inhibit or interact with the beta and gamma secretases um, in any manner. So with this, let's dive into some of the clinical literature and, and what that accelerated approval uh, process looks like for the FDA. This is a timeline uh, comprehensively of from phase one to future directions with aducanumab. And I will not speak to PRIME, which was that phase one safety study release. And we're going to focus primarily in this first section on both the eMERGE and ENGAGE trials, which served as those phase three trials that I'll speak to later. After this, we'll, we'll move through the rest of this timeline and, and speak to the approval process and what our future considerations for the med look like. So this is Emerge 301 and Engage. Both of these were identical 18-month randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled phase three trials. They were multi-site throughout 20 countries with a primary endpoint focusing on the clinical dementia rating sum of boxes or CDRSB. Secondary endpoints included the mini mental state exam, the Alzheimer's disease assessment scale cognitive 13, and then the Alzheimer's disease cooperative study activities, activities of daily living, mild cognitive impairment subscale. So we're gonna move through both those primary and secondary endpoints. Um, and additionally, look at some post hoc analysis afterwards that I'll speak to in the future. Now our inclusion criteria with this is very important. These are patients with Alzheimer's disease and mild cognitive impairment consistent with stage three and four Alzheimer's disease who also had positive amyloid beta via PET scan. The total cohort size for this was right around 3,300 patients. And I have the breakdown per our Emerge and Engage study respectively. And they were assigned one to one to one placebo, low dose and high dose aducanumab. And again, as I referenced earlier, post hoc analysis did occur um, with both Emerge and Engage for amyloid beta and tau protein via PET and other biomarkers. Now, there's two th items that, that make Emerge and Engage rather unique. The first is that, to my knowledge, they have not been published in any peer-reviewed journal to date. All of the information I'm going to show you comes from Biogen's publicly released information. The second is that both of these trials were stopped for futility prior to the FDA approval of the medication. And again, I will speak to this um, in our coming slides during that timeline. So this was the dosing scheme for both Emerge and Engage. Again, matched one, one to one to one. We had our APO, E4 carrier and non-carrier groups with a high and low dose targets as follows. 
six migs per keg and 10 migs per keg in that high dose category for carriers and non-carriers. And for our low dose, a goal titratable dose of three milligrams per kilogram and six milligrams per kilogram for our carriers and non-carriers respectively. Now, what I'd like to highlight here is that this gold dose uh, for our carrier group was amended in the fourth protocol um, for eMERGE from that six milligram to 10 milligrams per kilogram dose. So some of the results of this weren't linear and didn't remain necessarily static throughout the course of data collection for these studies. Now, this is the dose titration as follows. First, uh, for our low dose side, we have that initiation at one milligram per kilogram, which will be the same throughout all studies. And again, titrating up to three and six um, over the uh, time period of several weeks. On our high dose side, again, starting at that one milligram per kilogram and then slowly titrating up every four weeks is appropriate to get to that max goal of six and 10 milligrams per kilogram. And please do note that APOE4 carrier once more did have that protocol amendment um, later on into the study. As I mentioned earlier, after both Engage and Emerge started, they underwent protocol amendment in March 24th of 2017, and both of those trials were stopped for futility in March of 2019. Engage was failing to show any statistically significant outcome difference as compared to placebo, with Emerge only showing significance um, for one endpoint, which I'll speak to in the coming slides. What I would like to highlight here is that post hoc analysis deviated from our primary and secondary outpoints, where we focused on biomarker results and how that links into our FDA accelerated approval pathway um, in the future. So these are our primary outcomes. And I have this separated by emerge and engage. And again, as I alluded to, you're going to see the same pattern here. Engage fails to be statistically significantly different from placebo in either our low dose or our high dose group. Emerge, however, was statistically significantly different from placebo when looking at that high dose arm. Now, comparing our secondary outcomes, we see complete failure and engage to be statistically significantly different from placebo with Emerge checking that box of significance for high dose in our MMSE, ADOS-COG-13, and the ADCS-ADL-MCI. Now, what exactly does this amount to uh, in a clinical significant sense. What I have here is a construction of all of the high dose aducanumab results compared to placebo, only looking at eMERGE. So everything on this table has been statistically significant as I showcased on previous slides. And I wanted to highlight the difference in these scales of what we're seeing in change from placebo to high dose. Now the interpretation of this is certainly up to the clinician. However, as I look through and examine the pattern uh, of CDR-SB, uh, we're, we're seeing that progression from moderate past severe uh, in that evaluation scale. And while there is a difference between these two groups, the difference is not profound um, in its magnitude. And, and this pattern, again, continues on throughout the rest of these results where we do see statistical significance. The clinical significance, however, is certainly up to clinical interpretation. Now, this is extremely important in that the biomarker results is what Biogen is touting as evidence for the use of aducanumab. And they looked at two specific items, amyloid beta reduction uh, via the standardized uptake value ratio, where we take an image from one part of the brain compared to a different part of the brain as a manner of comparing. In this, we are seeing statistically significant uh, reductions in amyloid beta via PET in both ENGAGE and EMERGE trials. 
Now, even more telling is the amyloid beta reduction via centaloid, where a centaloid value of 100 is very likely to indicate Alzheimer's disease, and zero is very unlikely to indicate Alzheimer's disease. We're seeing drastic reduction in amyloid beta in that setting. Both engage and emerge with 59 and 71% respectively, both of those trials being statistically significant for reduction in amyloid beta plaque. So let's summarize what I've discussed. First, we're seeing high dose aducanumab in the eMERGE study was significant for reduction in all study outcomes. However, aducanumab in the ENGAGE study failed to meet statistical significance for any study outcome. And high dose aducanumab in EMERGE and ENGAGE was significant for a reduction in amyloid beta via PET. Now, if you're like me, as I first reviewed this, the next logical question was, what does this reduction in amyloid beta amount to? And fortunately, the answer to that is very clear. We don't know. The, there is an unclear clinical impact of how amyloid beta influences Alzheimer's disease and the progression of the disease state for those patients. This leads me to my second question. Which of the following best describes the clinical literature surrounding aducanumab? A, current literature supports clear benefit of aducanumab for patients with Alzheimer's disease. B, Aducanumab has direct evidence indicating complete lack of clinical efficacy for patients with Alzheimer's disease. C, aducanumab displays mixed results on clinical trial endpoints with notable positive, positive biomarker impact. Or D, while clinical trial endpoints were unclear, post hoc biomarker data proves clinical efficacy. All right, I think that's, that's what we have. I do agree with the audience uh, that C is the correct answer. Uh, aducanumab does indeed, as I've showcased, display that mixed results in the setting of both uh, engage failing to meet statistical significance in any outcome, emerge only meeting significance in that high dose. But there is notable positive biomarker impact. Uh, D would be incorrect is the post hoc biomarker data doesn't prove clinical efficacy. We're still really unsure of what that might look like moving forward. Um, and then A and B, again, both in the setting of that there is no clear benefit and there is not a lack of benefit at this point. So with this, I'd like to transition over to what the actual FDA accelerated approval process looks like and how that moved forward for aducanumab. To do this, we're going to focus very specifically on July 8th of 2020 when Biogen submitted the biologics license application only accompanied uh, a handful of months later by that FDA advisory committee vote and then the eventual approval and label change. So the FDA accelerated approval process runs off of the traditional application pathways. First, that clinical investigation with our IND or investigational new drug. After passing through those phase one safety trials, we then move into the marketing approval of a, a new drug application, abbreviated new drug application, or in the case of the biologic, a biologics license application. So the accelerated approval process itself was instituted in 1992 to be based on clinical benefit and approval can be based on a surrogate marker. And I have here a quote that the FDA will base their approval on drugs for serious conditions that fill an unmet need on whether the drug has an effect on that surrogate or intermediate clinical endpoint. So we see here, aducanumab is checking those boxes. There's quite a bit of need, it's a serious condition and there is impact on a biomarker with this medication. Now, the details surrounding the accelerated approval process are as follows. Again, we're meeting that unmet clinical need, and this will allow us to decrease our delay in therapy to patients and ultimately be to that benefit of the patients. The requirements, however, do re require that treatment of a serious life-threatening disease or condition 
as long as we can prove the product has an effect on surrogate endpoint that is reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit. And that evidence can be based off of biomarkers. There are limitations and that we've seen this play into the fold with aducanumab. The sponsor has to conduct post-approval studies to confirm what they presume this clinical impact to be. And the sponsor must also submit copies of promotional materials relating to the product during that review period. With this, I'd like to speak to the FDA advisory committee vote. This was a teleconference meeting on November 6th of 2020 with four total votes regarding clinical trials and aducanumab. Now, the first question I'd like to highlight here was, has the applicant, Biogen, presented strong evidence of a pharmacodynamic effect on Alzheimer's disease pathophysiology? We see that the FDA advisory committee was the, the majority uncertain vote, with five voting yes and six being uncertain of what role aducanumab plays in the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease. When we consider prime engage in the pharmacodynamic effect on Alzheimer's disease does now emerge, recall that statistically significant for high-dose aducanumab study qualifies primary evidence of effectiveness of aducanumab for Alzheimer's disease. Here we see overwhelming uh, votes of no with one member being uncertain. So the takeaway being from this, our FDA advisory committee was not sure how, what impact this has on the pathophysiology of the disease and certainly did not feel as though it was appropriate to use eMERGE as that evidence moving forward. I'd also like to speak to the FDA approval and label change that happened very quickly. So on June 7th of 2021, Helm was uh, approved under the very broad label of used to treat people with Alzheimer's disease, which if we recall back to our inclusion criteria did not necessarily align with the study population that we were looking at. Just a month later, we do see this change back to patients with mild cognitive impairment or mild dementia stage of disease to better align that label of patients who would be better qualified to receive this medication. Now, this leads to a, a bevy of health system considerations, a general feeling of uncertainty on clinical efficacy and safety, the overwhelming cost of the medication that I'll be speaking to shortly, and the decision of whether or not that we pursue this to add to formulary. This leads me into the final stage of the presentation today to discuss the stewardship considerations surrounding aducanumab. First, I'd like to break this into two domains, both pharmacoeconomic, and then we'll speak just a touch to the ethical considerations associated with this medication as well. Now, our pharmacoeconomic considerations are as follows. At launch of the medication, aducanumab was associated with a $56,000 annual price tag. Just in December of 2021, Biogen did elect to decrease the cost of this medication by half to $28,200 annually. I'm going to reference that $56,000 price point as that was what was the source of much of this controversy. I think as we look through the clinical um, efficacy and, and really analyze what the medication pans out, both price tags uh, will, will speak for themselves. Another component I'd like to highlight is considering the population that's going to be using aducanumab, it's not unreasonable that many of these patients are going to be Medicare Part B covered, and there's an immense burden of cost that this will place on our health system if used on a broad level. 
as we know, many of those medications and costs for Medicare Part B are covered 80% by that government payer, with the remaining 20% falling onto our patients. With this, we're going to see coinsurance issues. We're going to see out-of-pocket payment problems. There's a whole host of financial considerations in that setting. Additionally, the cost of the medication itself, if used on a broad level, has been projected to result on a a toll on our government health system and the tens of billions of dollars for this medication alone. Even last year, Medicare increased the, the rates of their premiums just to prepare for this medication being approved on a broad level. Now, the thoughts and considerations with the medication aside, there's also other non-likely non uh, covered items to consider as well. The three MRIs that are required in the setting of safety for our patients, the potential amyloid beta PET scan or other CFF, CSF testing that will accompany. And finally, the simple logistics of infusion center utilization, whether it be hospital outpatient-based infusion centers within the hospital, and the uh, logistic concerns that we'll put on chair time, or if we utilize specialists and physician chairs in that primary care setting with the amount of patients that could have been used, uh, this drug could have been used on with that broad label, there's a whole host of different pharmacoeconomic considerations to keep in mind. I'd also like to speak to the cost effectiveness of, of aducanumab. And in order to do that, I have to evoke something called quality adjusted life here or qualies. Now these serve as an evaluation of quality and quantity of life, and they combine both that individual and societal perspective together. And it's based on a utility philosophy where one life year or one of my life years at perfect health, that's one utility, would equal one. With that, if we can assign utility values based on different disease states, we could then calculate our quality adjusted life year. And what I mean by this is if I am bedridden for one year of my life and the utility value of being bedridden is 0.5, we can say that that one year of my lifetime was spent at 0.5 quality, considering that I was in a state of being bedridden and the associated items with that. I've also included on this slide mild, moderate, and severe Alzheimer's disease and the various utility values that are associated with that moving forward. Now, being able to calculate these qualities furthermore lets us be able to perform cost effectiveness as we can determine a cost per quality, compare it to supportive care or another medication intervention, and then look and see what is the price point for that change in difference that we see moving forward. Now, certainly we have organizations that do this, and I'm going to cite the Institute for Clinical and Economic Reviewer, ICER, and their cost effectiveness of aducanumab. What we see here, and this is from the healthcare system perspective, aducanumab compared it to supportive care, as again, previous medications were just um, alleviating the symptoms with Alzheimer's disease and improving our quality of life. We see again, invoking that cost per quality or our comparator cost times our comparator qualities. $204,000 difference in the cost of care between aducanumab and our supportive care and a relative gain of 0.154 qualities for aducanumab. Using some simple algebra, we come out to 204,000 times right around 6.5. This results in a cost per quality compared to supportive care of $1.3 million. Now, looking through the audience, I can tell who's familiar with cost effectiveness analysis, as I will share. 
This is well above and beyond commonly accepted thresholds for quality, uh, for cost effectiveness of medications. This is ICER's cost effectiveness threshold price of aducanumab. And again, remember aducanumab has decreased in price to that 28,200 annual cost. However, if we were to establish that commonly accepted $100,000 per year price point, aducanumab for this cost utility perspective would be priced at $3,000 a year. Even twice the threshold at $200,000 a year per quality, we would have a price of $7,260, which is 7.7 times lower than what the launch price of aducanumab is from a cost effectiveness perspective. I'd also like to speak briefly to the ethical considerations of the medication. I won't read through this list. What I wanna focus primarily on this slide is hope. This was the first novel medication brought to the market since 2003. This is an immensely debilitating and impactful disease on patients and their families. This is also a medication where we have dubious clinical evidence from my perspective on its ability to provide that care to patients. And in that setting, we put patients in a very difficult position of having to choose between supportive care or something that may or may not work. This hope perspective is extremely critical for us as healthcare professionals to focus on moving forward, and we have to be able to speak to this with our patients. I also would like to bring up the ongoing question of formulary considerations. So our formulary organism is not a binary creature. We can certainly place restrictions on use. We can cater what we carry on formulary, whether we choose to keep it physically in stock or not, and then all of the different criteria that a patient must meet to be eligible for that formulary medication. Additionally, I'd like to invoke the bioethical uh, premise of patient autonomy. By failing to carry this medication on formulary, we are taking away hope from patients and effectively saying, no, we will not try something that could work. In the interest of beneficence, providing care to our patients and patient autonomy and that physician provider relationship of having each individual case evaluated, I do feel as though adding on to formulary with many restrictions is the appropriate uh, route to take. This will ultimately encourage that shared decision-making model and find the best of two worlds of using this medication and its price tag for patients that may see the best benefit from it. With this, I'd like to open up to my final question. Based upon the clinical literature and stewardship considerations, choose the statement that best aligns with your comfort with aducanumab for Alzheimer's disease. Aducanumab is reasonable therapy for mild disease and should be added to formulary with no restrictions. Aducanumab is not reasonable therapy for mild Alzheimer's disease and should not be added to a health systems formulary. Aducanumab is reasonable therapy and should be added with restrictions, or D, it requires more evidence to determine role in therapy. Yes, it should be added to a formulary with restrictions. Perfect, I'm not seeing any more results coming in. So what I have to say on this is, I'm, I'm surprised there's not more of a split. Um, I do agree with the audience. My personal decision is option D. I feel as though it, we're, not, we're not close to the level we should be in having that evidence to determine role in Alzheimer's disease therapy. However, as I mentioned, Considering various components of ethics, um, 
I do believe that it should be added to formulary with restrictions. I'm, I'm very curious that we didn't see more of option B. And again, there's no wrong, there's no right or wrong answer here. Uh, it's all on the lens that you want to put and the philosophy you take with patient care. What we've seen um, time and time again from a national perspective, the VA uh, on a national level has not added a formulary. Six of the Blue Cross Blue Shield plans have not added a formulary. We have other prominent health systems that are not adding this medication onto their formulary. So surprised I didn't see more of B and can certainly understand that viewpoint. Um, and certainly with C, uh, again, yes, I, I think there's something to be said about what constitutes reasonable uh, therapy, but, but certainly agree that it should be added with restrictions. With that in mind, I'd like to tidy up here just a very brief comment on what some of the future directions look like for aducanumab. And as I mentioned throughout uh, this presentation, Biogen, as required by the accelerated approval process, aims to submit a protocol to the FDA by March 2022. They aim to begin patient screening and enroll right around 1,300 patients with an eight-month clinical, clinical trial. Additionally, as I shared earlier, in December of 20, uh, December 20th in 2021, Biogen did reduce that wholesale acquisition cost of the medication from 56 to 28 thousand dollars, uh, 28 and 200 thousand dollars. Now, this uh, the climate of aducanumab continues to evolve. Naturally, we'll speak to some of those considerations in the questions uh, period. Uh, unfortunately, didn't have the time to, to touch each component of this today, but very excited to share what some of these broad future directions look like. And I would also like to, to share a quote that I found from the Biogen CEO. Uh, we recognize that this challenge must be addressed in a way that is perceived to be sustainable for the US healthcare system. Certainly telling of uh, where the importance that this places on us as healthcare professionals moving forward. With that, I'd like to conclude today by saying aducanumab will not likely be the last time we see a situation like this occur. It is our duty as healthcare professionals to remain abreast of the clinical information, the financial impact, the logistic implications, and certainly operate with the premise of having patient care and the most appropriate patient needs met on that case-by-case -case basis. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.